Blog Talk Radio. There was a time I was so afraid, so scared to do what I wanted. In looking back, I can see all the mistakes that I made, and I wish that I Talk to me and tell me I can change. Don't be afraid. Just walk with your head up high. Don't be afraid. Just take it one step at a time. Don't give up on your dreams, no matter how small. Hi, welcome to Blog Talk Radio, Safe Recovery. This is Monica Richardson, and I am your host. Today is July 26, 2017, and today we have on attorney Zara levin Fergasso, and she chairs the Committee on Drugs and Law. I was tell you, we're going to bring her on in just a second. Um, she practices in the areas of products liability and pharmaceutical litigation, um, uh, Zara has worked in the legal profession for over a decade, and per, prior to pursuing her JD, Ms. Levin Fergasso worked as a litigation paralegal at a large commercial law firm and as a securities paralegal at an international bank. Uh, I want to talk about, let's see, some of her is successful. She's running right now for um, county committee. Um, County, yeah, I guess the county committee in her neighborhood in Yorkville in Manhattan. Um, so she is the head of, let me see, a dedication for human rights activist, is also a member of the American Association for the Justice and New York City Bar Association, where she chairs a committee, and that is on um, law and drugs. And let's see, she has co-authored a report on human rights, which was released at the United Nations Special Session in 2016. And she co-authored a letter to the editor, which was published in the New York Times in April of 2016. And uh, Zara also was recently named as a super lawyer rising star in the New York metro area for her work in products liability at the Lanier Law Firm. And with that, I will bring um, Zara on. Here we go. Hello. Let's see. There we go. Hi, Monica. Hey, hey. Hey, welcome to the show, Zara. How are you? Thank, I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, am I saying your name right? Is it? You are. Perfect pronunciation. That's unheard of. <laughs> oh my God, Zara Levin Fragasso. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> all right. Very it's good. Well, very happy really to have happens. you. Yeah. Happy well, to really, be here. what do they normally? What do they say normally? I get a Zara a lot. Um, Levine, um, Levine, Fragasso, mm-hmm. or I mean. Actually, the Fergasso people don't uh, mess up as much, oddly, even though I think it, it probably is the biggest mouthful. But it's my first name that usually is um, is butchered. 
So right, it's always, right. it's always well, lovely to have it done the first time. Um, that it, oh, yes, I'm so glad. Right, so. so glad to have you on. So let's talk about, uh, well, just tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, what you're doing. It sounds like you're doing a lot of good stuff. Thank you so attorney. much. I mm-hmm. I am an attorney. I'm a born and raised New Yorker. I grew up in um, Yorkville, Manhattan, where I'm currently, uh, about a few weeks ago, my local Democratic club asked me to run for county committee, which is the most local position we have in New York. It mm-hmm. is really you're just a representative for your election district, which is not even a block. A block would be, I guess, forced like uh, the square blocks, um, so yeah. like three blocks, basically. I, I don't know if that's mm-hmm. making sense to anybody who's not familiar with New York, but it's um, the equivalent of three blocks anywhere else, or if you think of a, a, a full city block as a square, this would be like a horseshoe shape. So I'm running for that. Yeah. I had to petition to get on the ballot, which I successfully uh, made it on the ballot, which I'm really – I was. That that in in of itself is a privilege alone. I would be absolutely delighted to be elected to serve. And I grew up yeah. in the neighborhood. I grew up on the block actually that I'm running on. I recently moved back and got my own apartment here. So it would be it would be real. It would it's doubly special in that regard. Um, you know, I'm honored to be asked to run, but then additionally to be running for the block that I grew up on is really neat. Oh, wow, that uh, so is that's so cool. Congratulations. On. That is really Thank you. so, I mean, that's kind of adorable. You think about it, right? Thank you. I think so. I, mean, I, I was a little girl here. I sold lemonade out on the corner, so it's 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 really cool. Mm, um, nice. I feel very privileged to even be able to run for it, and I would be, it, it's a great, we have a beautiful block, too, if I don't say so. I'm a little biased, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I grew up in New York City, too, but at the very end of northern Manhattan, uh, and I don't really know what's happening up there now, but I know it's improved. It was nice, and then it went, I sort of went downhill. But actually, at the very, very end, um, Washington Heights and Inwood, at the oh, very wonderful. north part, yeah. is, is still nice, like where Park Terrace West, where the Columbia football field is. That never declined. That's like hill up there north of Good Shepherd School that I went to. But um, I'm just really – it's so glad you – you know, we found each other, or I guess it was on Facebook or the Internet – and um, so I'm so interested um, because it seems like we've done mostly just talking through emails and stuff and social media of what exactly is this um, the lawyers and drug policy is that the name of it or uh, correct it's, me um, again, it's with? it's the New York City Bar Association and it's they have met over a hundred committees this is the committee on drugs and the law mm-hmm. uh, Heather Haas who was the previous um chair put me in charge at the end of her term so i'm serving from 2015 to 2018 at which point i will pass the baton to someone else we um the sorry just uh, there's a loud noise in my building I, <laughs> I oh okay we can hear it oh that's um, right so yeah heather i know heather from the, you know heather good. and um yeah yes so heather's the one who turned um the committee over to me um and heather was I mean, an incredible chair and we had started working on an anniversary report. So let me give you a little bit of background on the history of the committee. In 1984, yeah. the association tasked the committee, and the committee was formed uh, in order to study and analyze substance abuse and the laws in which we use to govern substance abuse and why, mm. they, why they commonly have not really failed to curtail the harms as well as prevent the use of certain substances. And so mm-hmm. in, back in 1984, there were not a lot of lawyers looking into this, to put it mild. <laughs> Excuse right, me, 1986. Right. Um, I misspoke, yeah. 1986. And the committee came into existence in 1986. In 1994, the seminal report was released by the committee. It's called um, 
a wiser course uh, ending drug prohibition. And mm. it was groundbreaking for its time, looked at the failures of the what is colloquially known as the drug war, analyzed and reported on how drug prosecution tends to um, go down racial and economic lines and doesn't really uh, curtail the use of drugs, but instead you end up with selective prosecution of persons of color and the poor. And so mm-hmm. they never, they didn't go the full step of saying, you know, we recommend, you know, decriminalization or another alternative, but it was a groundbreaking report in that it really, and you had prosecutors, judges, public defenders, um, many different viewpoints coming out and really showing how the criminalization of personal possession of drugs had failed. And yeah. so that was 1994. There were a number of position statements and reports came out um, in the interim, but the next real big one, they did a, a, re, a short reiteration in for the 15-year anniversary of a wiser course. That was before I joined the committee. I came to the issues. I was a law student in Washington, D.C. from 2008 to 2011, I went to the Catholic University of America, Columbus School of Law, which is known for its clinical programs, and Mm. I did a clinic um, called D.C. Law Students in Court, which I have to give a shout-out to. It's a phenomenal program. I'm a proud alumnus. It is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, clinical program in the United States. came into existence, I want to say, around sometime in the 60s, -hmm. prior to the kind of boom in clinical training in the legal arena. And they have both a civil and criminal program, I went into it thinking that I wanted to be a prosecutor, and so this would be an incredible opportunity for me to cut my teeth and really get glean valuable litigation and client experience um, mm-hmm. that, you know, from a criminal defense lens. And so I went in and with this um, you know, young person's um, ideals that I was going to be locking right. up sex traffickers. That was, that was my <laughs> goal. I was very passionate about um, domestic violence issues and helping women and children. Right. And what I saw, of course, and I went in, I did a, a 180 because I um, I recognized that I would not be prosecuting those offenses. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is, we need prosecutors, we need good prosecutors, we need people on both sides of the aisle. Yeah. What I saw in D.C. is that it, there was historic, in my experience in D.C., most of the crimes that were prosecuted were crimes that didn't seem to, in my opinion, merit the tax dollars that were being funneled towards them where you're really going after very low-level offenses for Mm. um, minor drug possession and that if you are a young person of color within the criminal justice and you're caught within the criminal justice system, that's your life. Like you're 16 years old, Mm. you get busted for a joint, and you're going to have a record. You know, if it happens one more time when you're 18, you know, you have an adult record, you can't get student loans, that shows Mm. up every time you apply for a job, and so it perpetuates this cycle of criminality within certain communities. And this is all around the time that um, Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, which really does an incredible job of summarizing this data, came out. And so I became interested in these issues through that lens, particularly because, um, you know, going to, you know, privileged colleges where you definitely, you know, you're exposed to there are people in other environments who experimented with these substances and never bore the consequences of them. And mm-hmm. the data, again, reveals that drug use down um, racial lines is either the same or even higher amongst whites, but is prosecuted more in black and Latino communities, particularly young men. And so that was something I felt was really an injustice and I wanted to do something about. So I started working more with these issues as I became more 
involved in the issues. I learned more about um, some of the studies that have been going on, FDA approved, with treating post-traumatic stress disorder with MDMA. Um, Rick uh-huh. Doblin and MAPS have this incredible program going on, and they're really having incredible, uh, close to like curative results with post-traumatic stress disorder in 9-11 first responders, uh-huh. Iraqi war veterans, people who need help and who the treatment has not necessarily wow. been successful with. And uh-huh. so that was another lens. You know, I mean, I'm a, a social justice person, so that lens appealed to me. And when I moved back to New York after graduating law school, Heather was starting her term as chair, and I had applied to the committee, and she called me, and the uh, the rest is history. So I, I was um, proud to be a member of the committee for Heather's three years as chair and, mm-hmm. and proud to lead the committee now as we continue to look at these issues, both on a national and international level. So there's, you know, the war on drugs is not just national. I mean, the, what I was just speaking to were particularly um, United States issues. What you have going on globally now with Rodrigo Duterte, um, executing drug users in the Philippines. Yeah. That that's something we would focus on and looking at how the international human rights treaties which are in place are arguably being violated by certain practices that um different leaders implement in order to curtail drug use. And I mean I'm of the mind that drug use and abuse is a public health problem. It's it's not one that should be within the purview of the criminal courts. Mhm. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, and I'm not going to go down a tangent because I could if I would do. I want to go back and ask you some questions. I find that really fascinating. Um, now, Thank when you. the um, you're, we welcome the committee when it started in 1986, and they had um, maybe if you could talk how big. Well, maybe it was 94 when they released the first thing, and you talked about that there were judges and their DAs, everybody. How big was the committee? And then also, how big was the group? You know that this um, we're, we're actually really working on it. In both periods, 86 and then 94. That's an excellent question. I'm not really sure I have the – first, actually, I need to say this on the record. I realize I hadn't said this. The opinions that I express are my own. If there is a city bar opinion, if we've come out on – we have certain recommendations on um, the drug war um, that I can – you know, that speak to the committee's positions, but the the opinions – and statements that I'm making here today are my own. They are not the city bars. So let me first say that because I am the chair of the okay. committee, so I have to be, want people to know that I'm speaking in my own personal capacity now, not as the chair. Right. Um, right, right. So I, I'm not I'm not speaking for the city bar association right now, uh-huh. the New York City yeah, bar association so, right now. So, yes, yes. It's funny. I was listening to a KCRW show, and there was actually a city councilwoman who was from Oakland, and they were talking about you know getting licenses for um, medical marijuana. Not medical. I'm sorry, just marijuana places. And um, it was on a Madeline Brand show that's on at noon every day out here in L.A. And she, when you were talking, it was like reminded me so much of what she was saying as well about the marginalization of people of color compared to, say, a white kid who, you know, is found with a joint um, in Culver yep. City. But, yeah, um, hopefully we're going to really change that. But so maybe I would just say, how how big is the committee now then, you know? And, and then how many people do you guys get to uh, affect and talk to? With your committee? Well, it it varies. So right now mm-hmm. I would say we have about 10 core members. We have more membership coming in in the fall. We have a group of people. We're an unusual committee set up. So one of the neat things with the City Bar Association is that because there are so many committees and there's so many lawyers in New York who are interested in serving on these committees, mm-hmm. a, sta- a traditional standing committee, you're only allowed to be on it for three years, and then you rotate off. 
With our committee, right. you don't have that, which is great because we're very much a niche. We have niche issue, issues, and we would lose our brain trust, and there would be a tremendous brain drain if we had to have people rotating off every three years. So you have right. one of our members, for example, Noah Potter, has been on since maybe the beginning of the committee. Not the, he was has been on since the original report was released in '94. He's a former chair of the committee. Um, he's incredibly knowledgeable, and so that would be somebody that you would typically lose in a standing committee, but because we're a special committee, we keep that those core people. So Heather was chair, but she's still on the committee now, even though she right, right. Um, her, served her term as chair and turned it over to me. Noah is still on it. I will remain on the committee, though I might take a few few um, meetings off. Shh, don't tell anybody after, yeah. after my term is <laughs> a little bit of a vacation. Um, but right. what's wonderful about that, and so you really have a core group of lawyers and academics who are reading up and growing and I mean I, I think about who I was when I joined as um, a young person just graduating law school just having passed the bar in 2012 with my limited interaction with the criminal justice system as a student public defender in Washington DC versus who I am now I mean this is we're going like five, I mean it's only five years which is really not that much but mm-hmm. the amount of information that I've gleaned just from working with these other brilliant people, um, these like absolutely brilliant people on the committee, meeting their networks, going to conferences. So that's to answer the other part of your question is we interface a lot with um, through conferences, larger groups. So the report that we and I want to I will plug the report right now if any if anybody who's listening, it is charting a wiser course. It was our anniversary update report to the original um, a wiser course that came out in 1994. And mm-hmm. it's online. It's through the City Bar. You can find it. We also have a letter of recommendations that we released recently to the Trump administration regarding mm-hmm. evidence-based federal drug policy, which are ba- premised upon the report. And that would be an official committee. Those are official committee documents. So those are the City Bar, City Bar approved opinions on on these issues. And that report, charting a wiser course, we released. Heather started. Um, we started working on it under her leadership in. 2013, and we got it out last year at the 2016 on gas, where we released it. We had a big event too at the City Bar in June of last year, and that you know has reached a wider audience. We're still circulating the report. It's 66 pages. It's a pretty dense legal analysis, looking Mm -hmm. at largely international issues surrounding the drug war because you do have these horror scenarios. And this was even prior to the Duterte massacres coming up in the news right. in the manner in which they have, really looking at the punishment of the mentally ill in other countries and how substance use and mental health are, go hand in hand, and we don't really, um, neither in the United States nor in other countries abroad, has, has that necessarily been uh, effectively um, handled. And so there's different, you know, there's different legal um, points. There's the human rights angle. We're also looking at... Um, Pardon me. So it's mostly a human rights piece, and it's largely an international piece. And so through that, we're interfacing with many different people because we will, for example, we submitted our abstract on the report this year to the Harm Reduction International Conference, which was held in Montreal in May, and the committee sent me to um, present our poster. It was it was accepted as a poster, so I stood there with the poster, and people came mm-hmm. over and read the report. So we we have like a pretty large pool, and it's an international pool that we that we interface with. Whether that's through individual members, Heather goes to um, Vienna every year for the uh, and 
interfaces there. So you have, you know, different people do their own. NOAA interfaces through more of the, you know, cannabis community. Doug mm-hmm. Green is one of our members who's, who's, excuse me, who has been around for years, and he interfaces in different, you know, different circles as well. So whether right. it's a direct committee product, our members get out there and interface with people and bring awareness to these issues through their their projects, and then as a committee itself, we host events. Um, we've had a lot of events recently. I want to say we've been doing one to two a year, and mm-hmm. we had a, a major event in May of this year. We had the former Deputy Attorney General um, Cole come speak, which was a big deal, mm-hmm. one of the biggest things mm-hmm. to happen for the committee. And yeah. we had a large audience for that, and then that's videotaped, and that's now on YouTube. So I don't truly know the overall numbers of people we're reaching, but there are different avenues that we're trying to get out there um, get these messages and this content out there so that people can really educate themselves because ultimately, particularly as we find ourselves in the midst of an opioid epidemic, the data and the you know legal projects right the um the states are supposed to be the um the test tubes of democracy and where mm-hmm. we try out new laws to see how they work. Well, we have data now that shows if you implement syringe exchange programs, you reduce the spread of h i v AIDS and hepatitis c and that's something we can all we can all agree is a good thing. What I think happens right. unfortunately with a lot of these issues is that people here you know, drug decriminalization, they think all of a sudden, oh, no, like this person wants people to use drugs. And, of course, that's not what any of us are, you know, advocating for, that people, you know, that we nobody's looking to create more people who are chemically dependent on, on toxic substances. What we're looking to do is we understand that there are certain harms that are associated with drug use, especially when that drug use is illegal, whether it's, you know, young people experimenting and they can't, and they're going to experiment no matter what, and they can't test the drugs to make sure that they're safe and clean. Like, that's something that we don't, I, we do not currently have a position statement on that, but people who we work with, are you know advancing kits that you know young people can take to concerts and, and test to make sure that they don't overdose because there's fentanyl or some other toxic substance in a high quantity laced with what they're thinking is a, you know a party drug that they can go have fun with for one night. And regardless of whether or not you want young people doing that, they do it. And how do we make that? How do we reduce the harms associated with drug use? That's really um, where this all focuses. And so I think. When you reframe the dialogue in that way and focus on destigmatizing drug use and really focus on ensuring that people are not harmed from right, the right. conduct that they're going to engage in no matter what, we um, you don't see the numbers like of heroin abuse going up in Portugal like that 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 data when Portugal right, decriminalized right. you did not see that go up what you saw is that people got help mm. and well, by decriminalizing and destigmatizing people get help they get better help. And they're able to become functioning members of society, which is something that benefits everyone. Where I mean, boy, that's a there, there's so many different things. So one first thing I'm going to try to I'm keeping notes so I can the questions that I have next. The the YouTube video that was filmed. Can you just give me some things that we could Google to find? So it was a former deputy attorney. Who was it again? I'm sorry, I don't remember who it was. It's uh, former deputy attorney um, General Cole. Actually, if you just Google near, um, the Trump administration and drug policy or my name, it comes up, I think. Yeah. Oh, okay. So we can put your name. And again, I want to just a little commercial for you that it's, I'm talking to Zara Levin Fragasso, and she's an attorney and in New York City, and she is now the com- committee chair for attorney and drug and drugs, right? It's not really called drugs and the drug law at the New York City. I, uh, so, I sorry, chair drugs, the um, committee. Drugs, drugs and the law. Drugs and the law. Drugs and the, the, the law. Drugs and the, the law. Um, drugs and the law. All right. So, 
I want to go back to one of my first, and that's not, I, I hate people who play devil's advocate, but I kind of feel when we talk about um, going global when there's such a problem in America, that yes. I'd like to get your sense because I really, I mean, I think it's horrific. I lived in Hawaii, I lived with a lot of Filipino people. Without the Filipinos, you know, like the whole, you know, tourist industry would collapse in Hawaii. Um, and they are really good people. I had somebody work for me on my film, fabulous Filipino young woman. Um, and um, that it was disgusting what's going on there and all of that. But yet, to, if, if the focus becomes out of the United States again, what would you say the focus is really um, on your, you know, is it really all, you know, is it heavily international or is it balanced that you see that there's so many issues in the United States, not just the drug problem, but let's bring AA and all the bad treatment that's also killing the kids. Like it isn't just the drugs that's killing the kids. In my opinion, AA is killing the kids and forced treatment into a place where these kids go. And this is, you know, my, my opinion show, right? So I can say it, but that if the kids go into a really old crappy meeting, not even an NA meeting, and then they're told you're going to have to come here forever and you can't drink and you can't smoke pot. They go, I'd rather use than be here ever. Yeah. I'd rather die. I'd rather get high than sit around with you for the rest of my life. So the component of really, really bad treatment in America that's 95% um, AA-based, that it isn't just that. And so back to the question um, is that how much focus is international and how much would you say is on, on our country? Well, we are first. We're a New York City Bar Association, so we're supposed to be primarily local to New York. Now, because of the nature okay. of these issues, which it's are New York. so, it's mostly yeah. it's it's New York. And with that said, in practice, the way that plays out, because you have so many layers, like there's multiple multiple parts to your own question that I want to hit on. When you're dealing with something like substance abuse and drugs that have been criminalized under under a federal statute you're coming and then you have international treaties that were a member that we, the United States is a member to that you're mm -hmm. coming up against you have multiple levels like you can have your you have localities that can legalize you have you now we've seen states are legalizing marijuana right so you've got Colorado mm -hmm. and Washington I think Cal, mm -hmm. you know California is moving to full legalization Right. That's they're still in conflict with the federal law. Like the Controlled Substances Act is still federal law, and, and what you're seeing is that you have federal non-enforcement. Then, at least we had under Obama. Who knows what's going to play out um, over the course of the next eight years? But then, even the states are essentially in conflict then with the international treaties, and right. because so you have so it's drug policy in general in the United States. Even if we're focus, focusing on a state or the states general or these you know United States generally it p comes into play internationally because you have those international questions just n given the nature of the beast the second piece is i do not know all the i will i will say that i'm not as knowledgeable on the you know data i have heard some data on aa where it really only has a 20 to 19% success rate with people um who so go like in that, that i've heard i no, 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 more like a 5%. I mean, Lance Dodie's, it's I'm sorry, I got a little bit of a cold. I got a blow my nose. No, um, no, don't worry. I, you're yeah, the expert I mean, on this. It, it, it's really low. You know, I mean, and then the forest is like 60 70% of those who are in meetings, and, and it's not just the people who get a DUI. So you have people who get a DUI, drug court, and then you have all rehab and sober living that are driving and forcing people to go. Um, to meetings. So the forced treatment big... doesn't work. I mean, that's yeah. that's something that anybody who has studied in this area knows. If somebody is ha is struggling with substance dependence, whether it be alcohol or something you know benign. I mean, marijuana is fairly you know benign substance mm -hmm. from a chemical standpoint. Um, alcohol, cocaine, more noxious if you're abusing them. Um, 
and you know anybody's like struggling with chemical dependence if they don't want to give you know if they're if they're at a point where it's having terrible consequences in their lives which which can happen i mean and there are of some course. people that abstinence only does work for it's just that you want that that has to come from that person's choice like you can't people and you know the studies show that People do not succeed in getting well if they're getting well from somebody for somebody else. What the right, other data right. has shown is that if you have people who have higher higher power jobs and they get into trouble, they do a lot better frequently cleaning up because there's more to lose. So that's I mean there's like socioeconomic factors as well in recovery. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. The other thing that we look at is you have multiple models of treatment. And again, like what you're saying is that there's universally there's only a few really accepted treatment models and most of those are like AA abstinence only. We do a lot of work. We've um you know there's the um Andrew Tatarsky who's this brilliant um yes, doctor in New York. Yeah. Yes, he mm-hmm. he's harm reduction based. And so we really look when we approach what work we have done on these issues. We're always looking from the idea of like harm reduction as an umbrella is if mm-hmm. somebody wants to do abstinence only, you get them that and you help them meet their abstinence goals, but that doesn't work for everyone. And so right. what works for one person may not work for another person. And so that it really should be treated as an individualized medical issue. A lot of times what people, you know, fail to look at, and again, I think it's just our culture with dealing with mental health, is that most people who end up having really, really bad, you know, substance abuse problems that are interfering with their lives or they, you know, drink themselves onto an IV or something, you know, any of these um, mm-hmm. myriad of you know scenarios that we can come up with there's an underlying issue you have trauma victims you have i mean you do have personality disorders like that that is something that um you know that goes with an antisocial uh, i mean i'm not a psychologist so i probably should <laughs> right 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 I'll tread with well, care. But, but i know yeah, there's antisocial personality <laughs> disorder and other personality disorders there are tremendous substance abuse that can become very harmful for other people in these in those individuals past can come into play and so if you're not looking at the underlying um, medical condition, you know, or maybe undiagnosed medical issues, then the treatment plan is most likely not going to fail. Just from a, It's most likely, excuse me, um, let me rephrase that, it's most likely going to not work and not be successful because you're only treating a symptom. You're not really treating the problem. Yeah, yeah, but I think we have to remember, I mean, a lot, I think a lot of us, I mean, I certainly, you know, had, um, you know, childhood trauma and some uh, abuse stuff and uh that I was medicating um for that which th- were those words I learned once I left AA and was educated by all the wonderful people from whether it was smart recovery all the you know different people who've had up these other programs but that there are a lot of men like in my interviewing people for the film and one of the guys was like on the board of AA who left because they weren't addressing safety at the time. But um, you know, there were plenty of men who didn't have underlying issues, and they were working in fields that were high stress, and whether it was in you know working in the stock market in New York or wherever where there's a lot of drinking, and it, be, it became habitual. And I want also whenever yeah. I have anybody on the show who says what you're saying, I always want to say this piece for the men. And there are women who it's true that it became habitual. And Dr. Mark Kern, and if anybody's listening, is a wonderful um, PhD that's here that's sort of the grandfather of moderation that really kind of maybe pounded that into me, like, but through education, that there is a habitual process to it as well that has nothing to do with anything that you went through. And so for those people, naltrexone might be a really good fit. 
um, and learning um, some cognitive behavioral skills to go along with yeah. it. I just want to add that to the piece. I'm not disagreeing with the portion of no, the people no, I... who have trauma with you, but I always want to say it when someone on the show says that so that they know that if you're a pilot and you, bec- you start drinking out of, because of stress, right, like you need stress or you don't need to go to the HIMSS program or to an AA meeting. These, right. You know what I mean? It's so sad. But, but stress, anyway, again, back stress to, is an underlying, yeah. I mean, we, that, what's the old, that's uh, silly, it's not silly, there's a statistic now that shows um, the average child now has more anxiety than a psych patient in the 1950s. And I don't know what, the, I, again, that's like I read that somewhere, I'm not really sure if, like, what the data that is based on, so take it with a grain of salt. But with yeah. that said, like we do, we live in a very stressful world. And so right. that's, again, that's like an underlying thing. So the moderation management would be treating like how to better deal with your stress. Right, right. But um, the guy I who think, was, I think those two yeah, can go yeah, hand yeah. in hand. Uh, uh, well, yeah, I think we agree on it. Now, I want to ask you this. This is like an, another topic, or but Jeff Sessions. So like oh, we yeah. have these 70-year-olds <laughs> that all need to like retire. Our beleaguered but, attorney general. I'm, Right, yeah. So here, isn't this the man that you know we need to like say schedule? I want marijuana to be not be considered uh, harmful like heroin. How do we undo and get marijuana as not? <laughs> you know, well, what's alcohol considered a schedule? What? What's what's alcohol? I mean, alcohol is alcohol is regular is tax and regulated, and so there are state initiatives to you know regulate marijuana like alcohol, and that's mm-hmm. again alcohol was. Um, when alcohol was prohibited, it was the states moved to legalize first, and then you ended up with the the amendment in response to that. But we, um, mm-hmm. you know, so again, I think this all politics is local, and so local initiatives, the states continue to erode that. It's just the federal government is not going to have the resources, uh, uh-huh. it, to, at least now, in order to enforce that. The problem, the, the the real issue that we need to look at with sessions is and I have not had the chance to really do the level of research that I want to do on this is looking at the private prison issue that yeah. um, a lot of these mm. these mm-hmm. so the day Trump got elected these stocks in private prisons went um way up and so that mm. that's something that we want to look at is that you it's if you're criminalizing and prosecuting people for low level marijuana offenses which most cases the policy is not enforcement like if you have a kid on Park Avenue in Manhattan who's like 13 years old and is out and you're a white kid in Manhattan in a rich neighborhood mm-hmm. you'll see you know that happening and kids are smoking joints on the street and nobody bothers them and so uh-huh. you have like it, there's non-enforcement down class and racial lines that we've always had in America um, when it comes to drug possession and then there's the non-enforcement that we've seen under the Obama years where there was a hands-off approach to dealing with states that were in breach of the federal law. Now, I do think that somebody like Sessions would probably love to go in and <laughs> reverse that policy. And they have, you know, they're within their legal, the Fed is within their legal right to do that. Um, but he's too busy dodging the bullets that Trump is shooting at him now. <laughs> right. I mean, that's what the, the problem right now. What we're seeing is that whatever evil, like, plan any of us may have been afraid they had is that this is this you know this administration is really chaotic, disorganized and at at the moment like fairly incompetent, which is I think good. <laughs> it's beneficial yeah. to you know if you have a cancer patient who wants their marijuana because it's the only thing that's taking away their pain or making their nausea go down so that they can eat. 
Um, and you have many, many medical practitioners now are prescribing this because it's far less mm-hmm. dangerous from that's. I mean, that's again the medical lens yes. than yes. Um, than the opioids. But for recreational, right. and I hate that word. I should. It's um adult use for the adult use of um yeah, like cannabis. That. Adult that's, use. That's, that's the correct yes. It's the adult use yeah, of cannabis. Like that. The I'm same way somebody would want right a glass now. of wine. <laughs> adult use. <laughs> the no, adult I mean, use that's so true. Cannabis, it's, it's far less dangerous. And all the, I mean, what, what research we do have, that's the other problem with scheduled substances is that things like psychedelics, which are, you know, kind of fell into the shadows in the 60s, are mm-hmm. really have amazing scientific properties for healing depression, Mm-hmm. Like I was saying before, MDMA is, a, is within that class of drugs. Is a um, what's you the know, street name for MDMA property. again? What's the street uh, the name for MDMA? Molly. Molly. Oh, it's Molly. It's um, yeah, it's, I mean, the, it's ex- ecstasy. Um, oh, and ecstasy. so like that when it was it was originally manufactured for couples therapy, and then once it fell into the party circuit, it became schedulized. But people are running studies now, like Rick Doblin's got this amazing study where they're showing incredible results where they do a low, like a dose of MDMA, and it's, I think, you know, it's a low controlled therapeutic dose with toxic, with behavioral therapy, and you're having results like you have not had with other studies dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. Wow. And so for people wow. living with trauma, which is, uh-huh. I, I mean, just a life sentence, that if you're able to get people treatment to deal with their trauma that is more curative than not, which, you know, we always think of Mm -hmm. these things as incapable of being cured, but if you get people results that maybe it's not, you know, it's cured, quote, unquote, but close, pretty close to, and they're able to learn mechanisms to cope with trauma, and they're not constantly feeling like this heightened startle response or the hypervigilance that comes with a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, to name a few of the um, symptoms, then why wouldn't we want to help people, particularly when you're dealing with people who are rape victims, who are um, victims of domestic violence, people who went and fought for our country and are coming back with the scars of war? Like that's something we want to, you know, move for. And so, but we're not again. Like the, the point I'm making is that you're not getting the data because these substances are so are criminalized. You can't study them. Like it's very hard to get a grant to study something that is. Criminalized. You have there's studies. There are limited studies going on in psilocybin and mm-hmm. acid and um, LSD, where you're treating migraines and depression. And so you're having really positive results in these topics. And this is you know somewhat like tangential from the marijuana discussion. But right. there are positive uses for these substances that we're missing out on because they're part of this overreaching, um, you know, Controlled Substances Act. And you can't get the full like scope of the research that you need in order to move forward. Um, because they're criminalized. So again, like that activity would have to would most likely take place on the state level, and just again with like educated dialogue where the stigma and the highly effective propaganda sur- um, surrounding substance uh-huh. use that has been uh-huh. in play in this country for a very long time and real. I mean, but largely enforced with I mean with what Nixon did in the um, in response yeah. to that this was levied against um, black people and hippies in uh, the 60s and 70s um, as a way to incarcerate, um, you know, young people who dissented. And so, I mean, who knows? I mean, that could happen again under somebody like Sessions. I mean, I, I don't think but, we you should know, get I, too complacent. Actually, I don't. I mean, I, I really don't. I've, I'm, I think I'm older than you, and I think that <laughs> um, it would be – so when Nixon did it, there's a big difference between – what the world looked like in 19, yes. was it 71, and what it looks like now. So it was not legal anywhere. Um, people were not growing it. Um, I couldn't go get a card. 
So there's a landscape, I guess that would be a good word, um, as there was a landscape with being gay, which has changed, right? So there's a certain thing that if you tried again, the pushback would be out in the streets. So it would be bigger than when they he tried to ban people from, you know, seven Muslim countries and everybody oh, went I, like, wow. Right? So I, I completely do think, agree. Yeah, but I, we think, would, people, well, I think the point is that more if they wanted to use this again as a pretext to further disenfranchise men of color and women of color this is it's always the drug conviction is a great pretext to do to characterize your your perceived opponent or perhaps a vote against you um, in a light that can either yeah. take away that vote. I, I agree. Or, no, I, I really agree with you. I do think that it is. I mean, I'm married to a black that. man. You know what I mean? I'm married to a black man. So I know what racism in, yeah. you know, 2007, when I tell people what, what resorts we can't go to or what cities we can't go to to visit today because we're not welcome and we're not comfortable, our That's white awful. Hollywood friends are shocked. And I'm like, you know what? Uh, let me tell you something. So, But there's so many great uh, pieces of, you know, things that you just said that I want to touch on, one of them being – money and private prisons. And I think that um, as with uh, kind of making AA and rehab and sober living back down to size, they, uh, people have been always saying to me, Monica, Monica, follow the money, follow the money. The answer is in exposing um, fraud and exposing corrupt yeah. corruption. So let's talk about that with people who own, who have invested in funds for private prisons who maybe have voted, like, so there's how, I mean, I started really thinking about that, um, that piece with the money. Like, for example, the first drug czar for Nixon, now, of course, I'm going to forget his name, but he created, oh, my God, he is so anti-marijuana, like, that guy is still out there saying that it is, um, you know, the gateway drug to heroin. I'm yeah. like, dude, like, okay, we all smoke pot, and I don't, you know, very few of us well, ever there's still people heroin. who. Right, and there's still people who believe that rhetoric even to this day. I mean, I'll find when I'm talking about the work that I do um, with the committee that people automatically are like, oh, well, you know, pot, I can understand, like, wanting to be legal, but isn't it a gateway drug? And, I mean, that theory has been completely debunked by science. Right. But that rhetoric right, right, right. and that propaganda, again, like going back to the 60s or even going back to, like, Harry Einsling, um, Einsling or oh, um, the right, 19- right. in, um, oh, in the 30s, like, Oh right, I mean, that God. rhetoric is so, that propaganda, it's good propaganda, because if there's, like, I mean, how do we, throughout history, how have we created these divides, like, you know, through humanity, which, you know, separate us and turn us against each other when we need to be, you know, uniting for the common good, is you drive lines down, like, if you can say that somebody is other, or that, that, that this, like, small behavior makes them bad or makes them, like, essentially an untouchable. I mean, that's really, I think, how we viewed, particularly people who use intravenous drugs throughout um, at least, you know, what I'm aware of in terms of my studying and the um, data that I've come into contact with is that particularly when it comes to people who are using intravenous drugs, it was a way, it's, you know, you're in, it's untouchables. And, um, mm-hmm. and then when you mm-hmm. unfortunately have some of the diseases that accompany that drug use. And now with, um, you know, the, I forget who said this, and I, I don't want to, I want to attribute it correctly, but when I was at the um, harm reduction conference in Montreal this spring in May, there was an amazing line, which is that essentially the opioid crisis now in America, where you were able, you know, previously in the 80s, it was, again, racial and class lines that you were, oh, uh-huh. this is these bad people, other, who uh-huh. are, you know, shooting uh-huh. up. Now it is 
everyone. And it has truly become, and I, I forget the um, name of the woman who said this, but it's become the great equalizer. That everybody at this point, for the most part, is like one to two to maybe three at most degrees away from somebody who either knows somebody who overdosed or, um, you know, has a, has somebody, a relative or a friend who has struggled with these issues or is dead as a result of them. And it's but you know what American else missing, tragedy though? that we're dealing but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what else is missing, though, is that there is no more talk. Like, how is it all getting in? Where is it coming from? Why is it all like, like, there's a part of this story that for me is a little bizarre. So, I mean, I grew up in the city. Um, no one used heroin. Um, the only guys who did were coming back from the Vietnam War. Right, it was completely taboo. Like you never touch that stuff because yeah. that stuff you could right. Right, so people drank. First of all, drinking should get lowered. I think back down to eighteen, and we'd have less of a problem because when you, I mean, if you can buy a house, right, get the married, binge drinking a, that in, it, it in creates college, binge too. drinking. So yeah. we've had that go on. Oh, we can go to college, but yet you're not supposed to be. There's that whole component, and you know, there's no talk of, and also the cycle with rehab. That if, okay, the cops make a lot of, not the cops, but, you know, I guess the, um, you know, the people that are going to chase the drug dealers, right, and then all the money that goes down that thing. Now then the kids get hooked. Oops, oh, you got to go to rehab now instead of go to jail or whatever. And the black people and the brown people go to jail. And then the white people, the white kids go to rehab. Guess what? But guess what? They have money. They yep. have money to go to rehab, so why don't maybe they want them on heroin? Because so I'm going to tell you the west side of LA, that's where all the DUIs were coming from, not from the hood, because they're not going to fucking show up and they're not going to pay it. They're not going to go when they get a DUI. They'd be like, yeah, whatever. But if they give all the kids on the west side tickets, they know that them or their parents are going to pay that, go for the DUI and pay all the tickets and all that other stuff. That there's a lot of more bullshit. That's a lot deeper than some white kid who played football, who was given too many pills, gets hooked on that, and then you go on to heroin. You know, it isn't just this, that little piece of the story. It isn't. And I don't trust it because if you see where the heroin comes in in Santa Clarita and you see how big that racket for rehab is where one guy who's an AA guy is making $30 million a year and all those cops there, what? Uh, I don't know. You know, it's 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 that I'm ignorant. I will say I'm not I'm not educated on this point. What I do know in terms of the current and again, most of my um my that you're far more knowledgeable on these topics than um when it comes to the uh, rehab cycle than I am, and particularly in California, I can't speak to. What I yeah. do know from the research that I have done on the opioid epidemic is that the you know fentanyl right was manufactured and I think like it started in like the late 2010ish area. And it is 50 to 100 times stronger than any other manufactured opioid. Don't totally quote me on that, but it's yeah, like yeah. It's and so, what's it created for? No, but what is um, fentanyl like with pain, dying, pain, of, pain, dying right? of cancer? Mm-hmm. And most, I mean, in most cases, but they, again, like all these things are over, were overprescribed. And what yeah. I what I read is that fentanyl is now it's on the streets right and everything is um caught with fentanyl. Like you can end up with a kid can go buy marijuana and the marijuana can be laced with fentanyl. Um, so the, it, it's in everything, which is horrifying. Like if I if I were a parent and I had a, mm. a teenager out there, mm-hmm. I, I would be absolutely t- petrified right now. Which again is another argument towards having testing mm. kits and harm reduction methods. Because if a child is going or a young person is going to experiment, let's get them the tools to make sure that they're not going to ingest something that toxic. Um, that aside, the um, 
it, they're manufacturing the compound now on the street, from what I've read. Is that so? It's not even the you know corporate fentanyl. It's that the compound is replicable in labs, and so I guess it's like it's cheaper and it's easier to cut things with it, and so that's happening, and that's what's leading to a lot of the overdoses. That's um, terrible. And so we have we are we are facing a crisis. It's tragic. We are facing a crisis. These the drugs were overprescribed. You had several. They were overprescribed right. back at starting in since I believe 2003. The amount of overdose deaths based upon um, or having some relationship to pres- um, prescription drugs, whether they initiated with prescription drugs and then leading to somebody sh- um, going and buying heroin on the street, or just pure overdose on opioids, um, prescription opioids, has more than doubled. Um, more than doubled since 2003 and in 2015 we had more overdose deaths than we've ever seen in this country's history i mean that's we're in a crisis right now this is a a public health issue that is not getting the attention it needs and then again you have people who are coming in with the you know the one you know like rhetoric which is not going to work for everybody particularly with something that is as physically you know that creates the physical dependence that opioids create and it, it just comes down to just a total i mean again like i think you know, I say with a grain of salt with the current administration that, you know, everybody's recognizing that we're in a crisis. But if we don't look at science and we don't look at this as a medical and scientific issue and instead look at it as a moral one, we will not treat it effectively. Yeah, I think that there's uh, – you really have to deal with what kind of treatment is there. And um, we both know what kind – I mean, I know what kind is out there. And I know that, um, like, they're awarding, like, a couple million dollars. There was a story that I got um, to a sobriety center. So it's going to be filled with AA members and steppers. And that's what these, you know, when they go there, that's what they're going to be hearing. And that's not going to have a very good effect on the uh, young people or anybody who winds up there, right? So the problem is, is that we have to change. How quickly can you change? And a lot of them went into mental health. Like these are my like friends of mine, you know, they all went back into college and became social workers and became therapists and I watched a lot of young women as I was leaving AA become they wanted to go into the field because it's a big money field now. I mean I was I was I did not know that, that. that it was a million dollar, you know, um thing. when I first started the work, like two thousand ten, I heard the word million. And then when Obamacare kicked in they, everybody had to pay for these rehabs. It became a billion dollar in the last few years when it finally kicked in, and you had to always pay for um, rehab. So there's the problem, and I agree with you that if you're addicted to a drug, it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, um, the woman who's got the, you know, Ferrari out front and m- mistakenly got addicted, that you don't need to go to a 30-day rehab to get off of anything. Like, where, when did that start? Like, you know, people, it's like it was a week of detox. And so I think that the point with the drugs and the law, that a big part will have to be to get AA out of mental health and get AA out how crazy that might sound to some of them, but it's not crazy to me. They need to get AA out of there and stop saying, well, if it helps some. You know what? It's failed so many. You can't be reading a book from the 30s. When you're dealing with someone who actually got addicted to pills that her doctor gave her for her broken foot, you know what I mean? No, I, it's definitely something, particularly with what's going on with the opioid epidemic, that I think um, would benefit us to look into. Whether you know, and I'm, I'm personally interested in you know looking into it just from again, you know, helping people get the health treatments that they need. It is not something that I feel I am 
I've read enough on to um, comment on in terms of the data and the statistics. You're definitely the um, the go-to on on these, and I, I respect what you're doing, particularly in terms of looking at and the, the one the one part of this that I am more aware of. And again, I will say, like I think you know, if something helps somebody. Um, I don't, you know, we never want to take away a support that we give people who are struggling, but we mm-hmm. want to protect people and we want to make sure that young women are going into safe environments. Right. Um, and the limited interaction that I've had with, um, you know, doing research on treatment issues has really been looking at what happens to young women in the, um, you know, in, in Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous where you do have, Unfortunately, some men who are, as as you have anywhere in the world, um, mm-hmm. who are dangerous, and that we, you know, how maybe sometimes we don't always uh, protect our young women in the way that we should from certain environments, um, right, or from right. certain men that come up in environments, and that's that is not just a, a failing of a support group. That would be that is a societal failing. That is, um, mm-hmm. and until we really deal with how we view young women and how we view women in general and um, treat respect for women and equality for women as part of our culture, you know, our overall cultural narrative, those issues may not change, but that, that's really the only, um, the only part of this I, I, I really feel somewhat qualified to speak to in terms of the research right. I've done. I don't, right. I don't right. know. The statistic I had really on, um, on AA and NA is that it really – and you can correct me if I'm wrong because you're definitely the, the, the expert on this. I, I am not, is that – you really see where it only helps, like um, eighteen, like nineteen to twenty percent of the people who go in. And so then there's a ton of other people who are not getting the support that they need, who maybe uh, more harm reduction based would work for, or like you're talking about moderation, where you're dealing with more of a management um, deal, um, underlying, you know, habit forming behavior. How do you treat that? Or the work that I've done looking at people who have trauma and tend to abuse substances because they're self medicating for trauma. Um, right, so right. If and we're if we're not if we're only treating to one group because that's been the paradigm for, you know, a very long time. That that's not good. Um, and I mean, the other thing is, you know, I mean, with, you know, a grain of salt. And I think again, like um, AA helps a lot of people. And I don't want to take away something that, um, you know, helps a lot of people. It's um, it is as you said. It's it's an it's an older it's an older structure. And so if cancer research stopped in the 1930s, or you had an institution that was stopping cancer research, um, you're wor- focused on making sure that their their way of seeing cancer treatment was the only way to go, that wouldn't be good for innovation and treatment. And so I think that's something that anybody... Yeah, but it's like, not, though. Like I mean, it, you know, with, I mean, with all due respect, I mean, because I'm going to... You get to say what no, you no, want. No, I'm no, agreeing. I think say I'm, it, I'm But agreeing. I'm going to say absolutely that... Like that would that would you know that scenario if we were I mean I had breast cancer um, that if I was treated like I was you know they did in the 1930s they would have taken off well, you would both go of to my a doctor, breasts you wouldn't go they right, would have and you wouldn't out. Go to a... no they would have done what they called radical mastectomies back then that that's what they did until the 1970s when a radical doctor said we don't need to cut all of her underarm and all of her lymph nodes and I'm so sorry you that know, you went through that right. no 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 it's okay but what I'm saying is that but when no, someone agree, on my show says that you. it's helped a lot of people I want to say no it hasn't like okay so it's helped people, okay. but it's also harmed a lot of people. Like I have to say, as the other voice on the show, 
that when anyone on the show says, well, it's helped a lot of people, and I want to say it's harmed a lot of people. So it's may helped, it's helped some people. And so um, somewhat, you know, 1.2 million supposedly are in the United States and Canada. You notice how they always link the Canadian numbers with the U.S. numbers. They never say that this is how many members we have in the United States. It's 1.2 in the U.S. and Canada because it makes it seem like more. But it is my beef. It is my, my problem. And I want to just talk quickly. Uh, we can get off it on Robert DuPont. So he was the drug czar when Nixon. This is like where the money comes in, Zara. So he was yes. the drug czar when President Nixon made you know marijuana Schedule 1. And here is from a site. This is from the U.S. News and World Report. And it's talking about you know, he's the guy who is always running around saying that, you know, marijuana is like, you know, the gateway drug to heroin. And the funny thing about him is that he, um, Benzinger, it was Benzinger, DuPont, and Associates provides full-service drug testing for employees. Oh, I didn't. Which includes everything from developing company policy, yes, to selecting like laboratories. Like the money. Right, and he, this guy is still out there talking. The only good thing about some of them, oh, we have such a little time to talk about Jeff Sessions. Like, these guys, aren't they all going to, like, retire soon? <laughs> we can only really hope. Um, I mean, I think that the most hopeful, the most hopeful to statistic from the entire election is that, well, I believe with the exception of two states, every state in the union went blue ages 18 to 25. And so if we're able to survive this assault on mm-hmm. our democratic institutions that we are currently, um, this battering that we are currently taking, um, I believe that the country will come out stronger, better, and you know, more, more striving to the ideals, right? Because, I mean, America is such an incredible concept and idea and a brilliant country. And what we have is we have these ideals. And so at some moments we have failed to live up to these ideals, mm-hmm. but at others we have. And I think what truly makes America, America, is that we have a diverse group of people who are constantly working to achieve, who or not, not everyone, but many of us who are constantly working to achieve these ideals that our country was built upon, this idea of life, liberty, right. and the pursuit of happiness, and that all mm-hmm. men, and I want to put in women, are created mm-hmm. equal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if we continue, you know, our finest, our, our, our finest hours have often followed our darkest hours. And so... I don't see Trump as a, a Democratic or a Republican issue. I see it as a moral issue, as him as a moral issue, as a mm-hmm. symptom of something greater that is happening to our culture that we were able to put a man with, who has expressed this level of vulgarity and morality and, um, or lack of morality in the public forum into power. And, I mean, I, I, I have many friends across, on both sides of the aisle, none of which would have you know, who voted for him, yeah. um, and that he's truly not – a patriot and what I would consider a patriot. Um, and he's, it's about him. It's not about, and this is, this is nothing to do with Democrat or Republican. If you're running for the presidency of the United States and you're going to be the leader of the free world, that is the most important job we have. And you have right. to love America more than you love yourself. And if all you care about is you and your family and your image, then that alone is, 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 harmful to the office because you want somebody in there. I mean, somebody like John McCain, who is a true statesman who served our country in war, like that is a true patriot. That would be somebody presidential. Barack Obama, somebody who truly loves America and believes in our democratic institutions and believes in the ideals uh, upon which this country was built, even at the times when we have failed to live up to those. But that if we move forward and we continue to work for those ideals, I do believe that we will come out, out of this stronger, better, and closer to the ideals upon which we are built. 
Well, I, I want to thank you. We will have to have you on for a part two. Um, we have like one minute left. And I, you know, I think that uh, in wrapping up that when we, you, you um, have somebody who was the host of a reality show, um, yes. it, it expresses what's going on in America. And we have many Agreed. reality shows where people more. have become, my friend told me that Snooki got paid more than Maya Angelou at a college to speak, you know, from the Jersey. We've yeah, we're, yeah, it's so it's alarming. Yeah, kind of, yeah it's, it is alarming. But uh, so we we are, are speaking to Zara Levin Fragasso, who chairs the committee on drugs and law out of New York City. And I really, I'm so glad that we finally connected and and had you on the show. And we will continue our conversation. I'm very very excited about what you're doing and hear more about it. And we'll have you on again. Thank you so much, Monica. It was really a pleasure to be on. I appreciate you um, having me on. I, the hour completely flew. I love speaking with you, and I, I've also <laughs> learned uh, I've learned something from you know from having this discussion as well, and would be interested in reading more about the um, the issues that you're focusing on, so I can maybe give <laughs> more more educated answers. I haven't um, I haven't studied a lot of the um, the rehab course um, work the coursework. Apparently, I'm still in college. I don't know. <laughs> No, we we, we, we want to talk about what but, you know what you learned, but I want to thank you so much again, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you everybody for listening, and we'll see you absolutely. again. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.